Hi everyone. Hope you guys had a great weekend. Today we are beginning with the nervous system physiology and the first topic therein is cerebral circulation. The brain receives its blood supply from the circle of villus. The topic circle of villus is quite favorite with the examiners and it would be great for all of you to practice drawing a circle of villus. The circle of villus is composed of branches from the internal carotid artery, the vertebral arteries, the anterior communicating artery and the posterior communicating artery. Two third of the brain is supplied by the internal carotid artery and its branches. Anterior cerebral artery a branch of internal carotid artery supplies the frontal lobes and the superior and medial parts of the parietal lobes. The middle cerebral artery another branch of internal carotid artery supplies the lateral part of the hemisphere and branches also supply to the internal capsule. Blood supply to one third of the brain comes from the vertebral arteries which are branches of the subclavian artery. They ascend in the transverse foramina of the upper six cervical vertebra. They run on the medulla and join in front of the pons to form the basilar artery. The basilar artery gives off the cerebellar arteries and then divides into the posterior cerebral artery that supplies the occipital lobe and medial side of the temporal lobe. The anterior communicating artery anastomoses between the anterior cerebral arteries thus forming the anterior part of the circle of villus. The posterior communicating artery anastomoses between the internal carotid artery and the posterior cerebral artery completing the circle of villus. The cerebral venous drainage comes from the dural venous sinuses. Now if you will remember Fox cerebri is a um, fold of dura which lies between the two, two cerebral hemispheres and houses the two sagittal sinuses the superior and the inferior sagittal sinus. These sinuses drain the cerebral and the cerebellar cortices. The superior sagittal sinus then drains into the right transverse sinus and the inferior sagittal sinus drains into the left transverse sinus via the straight sinus. These transverse sinuses lie in tentorium cerebelli. Tentorium cerebelli is the invagination of the meningeal layer of dura meter which separates the um, occipital lobe and the uh, temporal lobe above from the brainstem and the cerebellum beneath. The right transverse sinus and the left transverse sinus continue to become the sigmoid sinuses and these sigmoid sinuses pass via the jugular foramen to become the internal jugular vein on either side. The cavernous sinuses lie on either side of the pituitary fossa and drain the eyes and surrounding structures. These sinuses also drain into the transverse sinus of either side. There is a midline great cerebral vein that drains deep structures of the brain into the inferior sagittal sinus. So basically the superior sagittal sinus will drain into the right transverse sinus then continue to become the sigmoid sinus and ultimately become the internal jugular vein when it passes via the jugular foramen. The inferior sagittal sinus will continue into the straight sinus then into the left transverse sinus then become the sigmoid sinus and ultimately become the internal jugular vein after it passes via the jugular foramen. Now brain is a rigid structure 
it has a fixed volume and has three constituents that is the brain parenchyma which occupies about 80% of the volume the intracerebral blood which occupies 12% of the volume and the cerebrospinal fluid that occupies around 8% of the volume the monroe kelly doctrine or monroe kelly hypothesis states that the sum of the volumes of the brain cerebrospinal fluid and intracerebral blood is constant and thus an increase in the volume of any one component unless compensated by a reduction in the volume of another component will result in a raised intracranial pressure that is suppose if a patient is suffering from cerebral edema then this uh, increase in volume within the skull has to be compensated by a reduction in volume by decreasing the cerebral blood volume and by decreasing the csf volume by transferring the csf uh, from the cranial compartment into the spinal compartment and decreasing the production of csf however this compensation will only last for a short duration after which there will be a sudden and rapid rise in the intracranial pressure the normal intracranial pressure is 5 to 15 mm of mercury we will say that the icp that is the intracranial pressure is raised when it is more than 20 mm of mercury the common causes of raised icp include increase in the volume of csf such as hydrocephalus increase in the volume of brain parenchyma which occurs when patient has tumors edema or contusions increase in the blood volume as in due to hematoma or a cerebral aneurysm let us look at what cerebral perfusion pressure is a cerebral perfusion pressure is equal to mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure that is approximately 90 minus 10 which comes to 80 mm of mercury the normal cerebral perfusion is in the range of 70 to 90 mm of mercury when the cerebral perfusion pressure falls beneath 70 mm of mercury there is a rapid decrease in jugular venous bulb saturations due to increased oxygen extraction by brain tissue a cerebral perfusion pressure between 30 to 40 mm of mercury is a threshold for critical ischemia now let us describe the cerebral blood flow the cerebral blood flow to white matter is around 20 Uh, milliliters per 100 g per minute and that to the gray matter which is since more metabolically active will have more cerebral blood flow is 70 ml per 100 g per minute so on an average the global cerebral blood flow is 50 ml per 100 g per minute since the weight of the brain is 1500 g approximately thus the cerebral blood flow will be since it is 50 ml per 100 g it will be how much for 1500 g it will be 750 ml per minute which is around 15% of our total cardiac output so the weight of the brain that is 1500 g is approximately 2% of the total body weight and that receives around 15% of the total cardiac output the cerebral metabolic requirement of oxygen is around 3 ml per 100 g per minute which is higher in the gray matter since it is more metabolically active and brain has a very limited capacity for anaerobic metabolism
Just like the heart and the kidneys, the brain also has the ability to maintain its cerebral blood flow relatively constant over a wide range of mean arterial pressure that is from over 50 millimeters of mercury to 150 millimeters of mercury. This ability is called as cerebral autoregulation. The curve of cerebral autoregulation is shifted to the right in patients with chronic hypertension and shifted to the left in neonates. So how does cerebral autoregulation come about? There are two theories. One is a myogenic theory and another is a metabolic theory. The myogenic theory says that with change in mean arterial pressure, the vessels in the cerebral circulation undergo vasoconstriction or vasodilatation to maintain the cerebral blood flow. Suppose there is a hypertensive response, for example during exercise, there is an increase in mean arterial pressure leading to cerebral vasoconstriction which keeps cerebral blood flow constant. If there is a fall in mean arterial pressure, there occurs a cerebral vascular smooth muscle relaxation thus causing vasodilatation and thus maintaining again the cerebral blood flow. The second theory is the metabolic one. Normally, the cerebral blood flow and cerebral metabolism are coupled. That is, an increase in the cerebral blood flow is seen with the increased metabolic activity. Products of metabolism like hydrogen or potassium ions, nitric oxide, adenosine, they cause vasodilatation and thus improve the cerebral blood flow to match metabolic requirements. Conditions like convulsions and pyrexia increase the overall cerebral metabolic rate and thus the cerebral blood flow. Whereas conditions like hypothermia and anesthesia decrease the overall cerebral metabolic rate and thus decrease the cerebral blood flow. Now what other factors are there that increase the cerebral blood flow? Let us look at them one by one. First is the partial pressure of carbon dioxide. Between 2.7 kilopascals to 10.6 kilopascals, the cerebral blood flow increases linearly with an increase in the partial pressure of carbon dioxide. Beyond 10.6 kilopascal, no further arteriolar dilatation and thus a rise in cerebral blood flow is possible. Whereas below 2.7 kilopascal, no further reduction in cerebral blood flow is possible. Second is the partial pressure of oxygen. No effect on cerebral blood flow is seen until the PaO2 falls below 7.5 kilopascals, that is 60 millimeters of mercury. At this PaO2, hypoxic vasodilatation occurs and there is a dramatic rise in ICP. Thus, in head injury patients with hypoxia, hypoxia will actually cause a further rise in ICP and result in brain ischemia. Third factor are the various anesthetic drugs that we use. Volatile anesthetic agents cause vasodilatation of cerebral blood vessels, increasing the cerebral blood flow. At the same time, they also decrease the cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen consumption, that is the CMRO2. Thus, it uncouples the cerebral blood flow from the cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen consumption. This effect is seen to be less profound with sevoflurane. Atom MAC of more than 1.5 volatile anesthetic agents abolish cerebral autoregulation. Nitrous oxide is a potent vasodilator and it increases both the cerebral blood flow and the cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen. Opioids have no direct effects. 
However, rapid boluses of strong opioids result in a rise in ICT. Now, how does that occur? Rapid boluses of strong opioid result in respiratory depression, which increases the PaCO2 and thus the cerebral blood flow, resulting in a rise in ICP. Also, they cause a rapid fall in mean arterial pressure, resulting in vasodilatation due to autoregulation, thus increasing the cerebral blood flow and causing a rise in ICP. All IV induction agents such as thiopendone, propofol, etomidate will reduce the cere cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen, cerebral blood flow and ICP except ketamine. Ketamine is known to cause an increase in the ICP. Thiopendone can be used therapeutically to reduce the ICP which is refractory to other agents. The neuromuscular blocking agents have no effect on the cerebral blood flow. Now let us look at the physiological management of a head injury patient. First of all, we should maintain oxygenation in such a patient and target a PaO2 of more than 10 kPa that is more than 75 mm of mercury as hypoxia will cause vasodilatation, raise cerebral blood flow and thus the ICP. Secondly, we should maintain the cerebral perfusion pressure between 70 to 90 mm of mercury. If the ICP is raised, as it happens in an unconscious patient with head injury, we should maintain the mean arterial pressure more than 90 millimeters of mercury to ensure adequate cerebral perfusion pressure. This can be done with vasopressors and infusing fluids. It is extremely important to remember that we should never administer hypotonic fluids like dextrose 5%. When dextrose 5% is administered, the dextrose gets metabolized by the insulin and only the free water remains in the intravascular space. As a result of this hypotonic fluid that remains within the intravascular space, it enters into the cells resulting in cerebral edema. Hence, hypotonic fluids like dextrose 5% should always be avoided. Also, Aid the venous drainage of the head by positioning the patient at a 30 degree head up tilt. Ensure that the endotracheal tube ties do not obstruct the venous drainage. Tapes can be used to secure the endotracheal tube instead. Third, we should reduce the intracranial pressure. Firstly, by maintaining the normocapnia and normoxia, since hypoxia and hypercapnia are known to cause a raise in the intracranial pressure. Diuretics like furosemide in the dose of 0.25 to 1 mg per kg, mannitol in the dose of 0.25 to 1 gram per kg can be used. Also, hypertonic saline can be used to reduce the ICP by reducing the cerebral edema. Last but not the least, we should reduce the cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen consumption, which can be done with drugs like thiopentone, propofol or midazolam. Therapeutic hypothermia can be in induced. It is known that cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen decreases by 7% for every 1 degree Celsius fall in temperature. We should treat pyrexia, we should prevent and treat convulsions and maintain normoglycemia. This brings us to the end for today's episode. Hope you liked it. If you did, please subscribe and share.
Thank you for listening to me.